Savor the Great Musk Panic On drinking the delicious tears of blue-check hypocrites who've suddenly discovered the perils of a privatized speech landscape. The New York Times earlier this week ran a guest essay by Gawker founding editor Elizabeth Spears, fulminating about Elon Musk's effort to purchase Twitter. She wrote, What exactly does Musk believe can't be said on the platform right now? It certainly doesn't take long to find discredited race science, arguments that women are intellectually inferior, anti-Semitism. It is easy to assume that the banned speech that Mr. Musk is standing up for is worse even than that. As the comedian Michael Che put it on Saturday Night Live, the $44 billion deal shows how badly white guys want to use the N-word. This is the elite argument against free speech in a nutshell. If you favor all legal speech, you really just want to slander, threaten, and harass. Now please let me tiptoe up to libel myself, as I tell millions of New York Times readers I assume you're a racist, itching to use the N-word. The hypocrisy of America's self-appointed culture protectors this week is breathtaking. They really seem not to realize that what they've been seeking for years isn't an end to speech abuses, but a monopoly on them. They see Musk as a traitor to his class, threatening to upend what they see as a natural order that in recent years place blue-nosed squads in deserved roles as vanguards and truth arbiters. Whether or not Musk ever upends anything is a different question, but critics believe he will, and now they're panicking, in tones of maximum sanctimony. They're even pulling out who-will-protect-the-children-style language. I spent a good part of the last four years warning that asking unaccountable billionaires to meddle more in speech would result in exactly such a table-turning episode, in which the political mainstream's cocky censor squad would wake up one day to find the wrong tycoon in charge, at which point they would cry foul and howl suddenly about the evils of oligarchy. For failing to cheer their vision of enlightened censorship, colleagues denounced me as a reactionary pervert in the employ of, pick one, Trump, Assad, Putin. So it's hard to do anything but chuckle at their anguish this week. According to mainstream legend, Twitter executives were forced to rethink their hands-off, free speech wing of the free speech party approach after watching the at real Donald Trump account become the world's most followed news network during the 2016 election campaign. In doing so, they upended the power of traditional news media figures to filter out what they deemed unacceptable political candidates. The Washington Post would later describe how anguished Twitter general counsel Vijaya Gad and CEO Jack Dorsey realized after Trump's election that their product had escaped its pen and needed putting down. Twitter's largely liberal employee base faced growing criticism, and workers complained that the first question they were asked when they told someone they worked at the social media service was, what about Trump's account? His account was even briefly deactivated once by a rogue Twitter employee in 2017. By 2018, Dorsey and Gad, whose title is Legal, Policy and Trust and Safety Lead, knew they had to rethink their approach to powerful people's megaphones. Executives began to devise new policies and product features that would enable the company to place a specific label to cover up a tweet. The post went on to describe a Shakespearean tragedy, in which executives like Dorsey and Gad tried, against all logic and evidence, to cling to doomed speech principles throughout the Trump presidency. Blind to their fate as all tragic figures must be, they held on past the bitter end, leaving Trump's account up long enough to imperil democracy itself via the insurrection. Democracy was always democracy itself in the Trump years. January 6th in this version of the story was clearly Twitter's fault, caused by a mob of Trump supporters following the president's calls on Twitter, as the Post put it. When the company then belatedly did the right thing and deactivated Trump's account, the Post said it, 
brought to an end an era of free speech online that Twitter itself helped create. That's one version of history. I remember another. First, it wasn't Twitter that undermined the authority of Beltway pundits and backroom kingmakers, like Mark Halperin's famous Gang of 500, to decide which candidates were and were not electable. Way back before 2016, voters had begun the process of rejecting obnoxious elitist rituals, like the Invisible Primary, in which nominees were supposedly chosen before primaries even began by faceless groups of donors, party officials, and key media figures. We saw an early preview in 2008, when Hillary Clinton won the invisible primary, but Democratic voters chose Barack Obama instead. In 2016, Jeb Bush got $150 million in backing and won three delegates. That wasn't because of Twitter. It was because Jeb Bush was a historically pathetic candidate who couldn't fill an aisle of a New Hampshire drugstore. Media priests then cycled through one horrible candidate after another, announcing each would eventually emerge as the real, non-Trump Republican choice. Every single one of them, from Scott Walker to Chris Christie to John Kasich to Marco Rubio, flopped in spectacular fashion, and that wasn't Twitter's fault either. Nor was it Twitter's fault that virtually every pundit at every major news outlet declared it impossible for a candidate to win without their approval. It wasn't Twitter that forced the New York Times to write in September of 2015 that Trump had just about no shot because it is the party elites who traditionally decide nomination contests. A second major problem with the Twitter's failure to censor caused Trump version of history is it ignores the way Democrats themselves began meddling with the platform during the same time period. When Hillary Clinton unexpectedly struggled to defeat a penniless primary challenger in Bernie Sanders, she and her pals in media launched an unforgivable smear campaign against him, using Twitter. Sanders had gained momentum by asking painful questions about Hillary's real history of accepting vast sums and speaking fees from crooked banks. Blue Check stopped that dangerous story in its tracks by introducing a new one about the scourge of online Bernie bros. Thanks to this clever mid-campaign push by the Clinton campaign, suddenly the issue of the 2016 Democratic primary was a supposed online onslaught of white male Twitter trolls who hated women and minorities and were Bernie's real base. The supporters in Bernie's enormous real-life crowds were apparently only pretending to be diverse masses of self-effacing pseudo-socialists who supported unions and free healthcare. According to Clinton acolytes and waves of their cultivated blue-check pundits, these Bernie fans were really a stealth hate movement. This began a long period in which it was deemed not just acceptable, but desirable to smear people in certain ways online. Things that only a decade ago would have been considered at least libel-adjacent, like Hillary Clinton calling Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset, or The Guardian calling comics like Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle bigots in a headline no longer inspired hesitation, while factually bogus stories about people like Julian Assange or Trump were greenlit with regularity by the same people who once rightly denounced smears of people like Hillary or Monica Lewinsky in right-wing media. While smearing in one direction became increasingly permissible, other types of cyber misbehavior were declared so serious they required the intervention of some of the country's highest elected officials. As far back as 2017, the senior executives of companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter were dragged to the hill and scolded for failing to do enough to stop Russia's influence operation, by which of course they meant Trump's 2016 electoral victory. Senators like Virginia Democrat Mark Warner made it clear that if platforms didn't start censoring more, they would be taxed and regulated in a list of fascinating new ways. Soon after the scolding, word leaked out that the changes companies like Google dutifully enacted to their algorithms to combat fake news 
had the highly convenient effect of reducing traffic to sites critical to centrist Democrats. These were not just conservative sites, but also traditionally liberal and even socialist outlets like Common Dreams, Truthout, Alternet, and the World Socialist website. Of course, none of the blue-check warriors currently howling about Musk cared then, because to them, such left-leaning critics of the Democratic Party might as well have been Russian agents. The Washington Post all but said as much in late 2016 when it ran a fawning profile of the anonymous smear artist Prop or Not, who compiled a list of 200 websites that wittingly or unwittingly published or echoed Russian propaganda. Imagine the gall of the Washington Post editor who approved the line that accused sites as diverse as LewRockwell.com, TruthDig, NakedCapitalism, Antiwar.com, and the Ron Paul Institute of, at least perhaps, wittingly helping an alleged election-fixing conspiracy. But of course, that wasn't harassment or abuse, since those were strictly Trumpian phenomena. The true ribbon-cutting event of the content moderation era, of course, was a move that thrilled blue checks everywhere. The expulsion of red-faced InfoWars yutz Alex Jones from Facebook, Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms. Virtually everyone who had an opinion on this matter focused on how much of a jerk they thought Alex Jones was and how much he deserved banishing. Only a handful took the wider view, wondering about the precedent of oligopolistic tech executives acting in concert to remove speech. Perhaps, a few wondered, it was not a good idea to have a star chamber of billionaires deciding in secret what is and is not appropriate media. Governments at least purport to be acting solely in the public interest, but platforms are making these decisions based on what's in their financial interests, said Ben Wisner, then director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. So their interest might be in avoiding controversy, but do we want the most important speech platforms in the world to avoid controversy? This was the moment to worry about the ultra-wealthy deciding to exercise selective control over America's media distribution systems. Because the platform's first target was Alex Jones, however, the commentariat roared approval. Twitter finally acts as Alex Jones, was the Wired headline. Deplatforming works, added Vice. Alex Jones said bans would strengthen him. He was wrong, chirped the New York Times. I wrote then that press people in particular were making a huge mistake in cheering the end of the old litigation-based method for dealing with things like Jones-Sandy Hook reporting and turning authority over to faceless groups of executives working behind the scenes with legislators to fulfill a vague mission of preventing the foment of discord. When Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy said deleting Jones was only a good first step, I thought that should have been a clue even to the densest media critic that much more radical changes were coming that may not work out as they expect. Americans are not freaking out about this because most of us have lost the ability to distinguish between general principles and political outcomes. So long as the right people are being zapped, no one cares. When it soon after came out that companies like Facebook were working with think tanks like the Atlantic Council to identify inauthentic accounts and were zapping first dozens and then hundreds of real independent sites as a result, including outlets that were anti-Trump or pro-Palestinian or monitored police brutality cases, the reaction was again a shrug. The reason, I wrote, was obvious. When Facebook works with the government and organizations like the Atlantic Council to delete sites on national security grounds, Using secret methodology, it opens the door to nightmare possibilities that you'd find in dystopian novels. The sheer market power of these companies over information flow has always been the real threat. 
This is why breaking them up should have long ago become an urgent national priority. Instead, as was obvious during the Senate hearing with Mark Zuckerberg earlier this year, politicians are more interested in using than curtailing the power of these companies. For years, these folks had every chance to campaign for another, fairer way of dealing with online speech. Not only did they not do that, they specifically endorsed the model of opaque, billionaire-controlled, monopolistic star chamber platform because they want to retain power to smear and censor people they didn't like on a mass scale. Moreover, in just four years, they went from drawing the line at Alex Jones to being unable to take a joke in the Babylon Bee. Now it may be blowback time, and they're sad. Could a less sympathetic group of people even be imagined? Is it wrong to find their angst hilarious? It doesn't feel wrong. Enjoy the ride, knuckleheads. You built this roller coaster. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, visit taibi.substack.com.